Remember, freedom is a gift from God. Choose to accept it, guard it, nourish it, share it with your loved ones. Don't let anyone take it from you. Choose to be free. Learn how to choose freedom with your host, Dr. Baruch Platner. Welcome to the show, my friends. You know, once in a while, you know, maybe once in every few generations, uh, nations are faced with a choice that is embodied fully in two individuals, each one representing each side or one side of that choice. And uh, since we're talking about America here and um, the, the, the upcoming election, we are only a few days, election is this coming Tuesday. Well, as far as America goes, uh, this election is the third seminal event in American history. Uh, the first one was the American Revolution, the American War of Independence itself in 1776. The second one was the American uh, Civil War. Actually, it was a second civil war since the American uh, Revolution, so-called, was the first one. And we are now in the midst of, as of yet, not very hot, third civil war, civil war in America. Uh, and this election will tell us uh, how this will determine how this uh, civil war uh, progresses and um, who um, is likely to win it. No matter who wins this election, and of course I fervently hope that this will be President Trump, uh, the war will not be over. This is not 1864, this is 1861. This is not 1780, this is 1776. We're just beginning. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, this notion of uh, people that kind of float to the top historically, representing for better or for worse, their, their side in those uh, historical upheavals and those monumental events that face every nation once, uh, once uh, every so often. In 1776, you could say that uh, the two men were George Washington on the American Patriot side and General Cornwallis on the, uh, on the side of England and on the side of uh, those loyalists, in other words, Americans who uh, decided that they did not want to throw their lot with the rebels, in other words, with what we call today the Patriots. And if we examine these two men, they tell us much that we need to know, if not everything we need to know, about the uh, crux of that struggle, about the essence of that struggle for American independence. Uh, George Washington, while by colonial standard, you could say that he was privileged because he was born into a kind of a land-owning family in Virginia and so on. Nevertheless, from the perspective of hereditary nobility like Lord Cornwallis, he was no different from a shopkeeper. You know, he was no different from Paul Revere who made trinkets out of pewter. Now, granted, Paul Revere's trinkets were very nice, but he was still, from the perspective of the British nobility, just an artisan, a shopkeeper. And so 
was George Washington. And we know this because, uh, not only because of um, writings and so on, but because George Washington, who was an exceptionally gifted military officer and who was very instrumental for the British in the French and Indian Wars that raged through the 1760s and uh, much of the 1770s, uh, there was nothing that he could that he wished more. I'm talking about George Washington than to get uh, like a commission, an officer's commission in the British Army. Uh, he wanted to be, you know, just a junior lieutenant, or as they would say, the Brits lieutenant. Uh, he certainly had no aspirations of being a general, certainly not uh, early on. But the British Army, in which uh, those commissions, officers' commissions, were either hereditary for the nobility or uh, for the major nobility like Cornwallis or purchased with money uh, for uh, people who were either minor nobility or um, in some cases uh, uh, children or sons of wealthy merchants. Well, George Washington didn't have that kind of money to purchase his commission and the English had no desire to grant it to him because they did not see in him uh, part of their ruling class as part of their elites. So um, when you look at somebody like uh, George Washington, what are you know, the characteristics of that man? And the characteristics of, jo of George Washington that are pertinent to this uh, analysis uh, are his, primarily is his fierce loyalty to his tribe. His loyalty was quite local. He was a Virginian first and foremost, and an American second. And it's those loyalties, and Englishman, I should say, he was an Englishman, but that English part of his identity was far, far below his identity as um, a Virginian and an American. And so the reason that he chose this course of action and embarked upon a course of action that every Englishman in the world, including many Americans, would call treason. The reason that he embarked on, the, on this treasonous, uh, you could say from the English perspective, course of action and risked everything for it was because he did not perceive England as his homeland and the English as his tribe. And it was that tribal, today you could say national, or even nationalistic belonging that shaped George Washington's worldview. Well, what about uh, Cornwallis? Cornwallis was a member of uh, the British super elites, a member of their um, high level hereditary nobility. And as such, you could say using today's language, this is an, an anachronism, but it's a, a good one. In other words, it fits. Uh, Cornwallis was a fear, uh, Cornwallis was first and foremost a globalist. And the reason I say that is because if Cornwallis and people like him felt that their first tribal belonging, the tribe that they really belonged to, was not. England or the English people. It was the pan-European, you could say today, global 
because to them, to these people, Europe was the world. And then to a large degree, it really was because, uh, you know, China was already in steep decline. Japan was isolated and uh, self-isolated and so on. So Europe, honestly, like worldwide at that time in, in the late 18th century, Europe was it. And I'm, I'm including Russia in this uh, concept of Europe or this idea of Europe. So Cornwallis would have seen the Russian uh, high nobility, the French high nobility, the various nobles in the various German states, you know, like uh, Nassau or, or, Saxo or Saxony or uh, Bavaria or whatever it was. Germany was not a unified country then. But Cornwallis would have seen in all of these people, in fact, you know, Russia was then ruled by uh, uh, Empress Catherine II, who was a German. She did not have a, a drop of Russian blood in her. She was a German princess from a, uh, a small principality in Germany. Well, Cornwallis would have seen in Catherine, uh, who was ruling at that time Russia, much more, somebody who was much more a member of his tribe than some English shopkeeper, be, he, be that English shopkeeper, you know, Paul Revere in Boston or his namesake Paul Revere in Boston, England. Because, as you know, there is a, a town in England called Boston, after which the town in Massachusetts, Boston, was called, right? So it didn't matter to Cornwallis if Paul Revere was in Boston, Massachusetts, or in Boston, England, as long as they were simple shopkeepers and were doing making things out of pewter or maybe having, uh, you know, a pl small plantation and making whiskey like George Washington. To them, the, the, to, to Cornwallis, these were all not his people. Not his people. Catherine, who was German and, and was ruling Russia, she was his people. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the high nobility in France, uh, the, and they were soon to uh, undergo their own revolution, or other nobles in, in, in Europe, they were his people. So Cornwallis perceived himself as a member of this um, nobility, of this tribe called the Pan-European nobility. And when he went to fight George Washington at the behest of King George III, he did so for those principles that, for those what we would call today globalist principles that involved the rule of the nobility, the rule of the global elites over everyone else. And the way that Cornwallis and uh, King George III and other people like, like that, how they perceived the rebellion of uh, the, uh, the American patriots, and they wrote about this, this, there's tons and tons of writing, they saw it as a rebellion of shopkeepers. They uh, kind of... Um, they derided uh, these these people saying, oh, you know, they don't want to pay taxes. They, they, they are in love with money being, even though this nobility was very rich to them, making money, I guess because they didn't have to make it, was a rather kind of unpleasant, odious, odiferous pursuit, right? So these people who had to, who had to work for a living and, you know, make pewter pitches or pitchers rather, uh, or, you know, bowls or 
grow corn and make whiskey out of them. Well, to them, to the, to, to this pan-European nobility, those were um, villains, because the word villain comes from the word from the from the word villager, right? So, so to them, they were gentlemen, and these other people were were were, were villains, right? So, they. These two people, George Washington, the fierce patriot who was fighting for his tribe, and Cornwallis, who was fighting for his tribe, represented their, that war, that, that, the war of that generation. Because for George Washington, all Virginians were his tribe. All Americans were his tribe. So uh, a poor American uh, from, you know, some poor farmer in Massachusetts was much more from Washington perspective a member of his tribe than the same kind of farmer in England because George Washington was like well I mean you know I was born in America I don't have really anything to do with England in that sense right but to Cornwallis you know a Russian queen or empress was much closer to him than any whether American or, or English shopkeeper or peasant or you know something like that and that was a struggle between these two concepts a concept so the concept of nationalism uh, which was spearheaded by George Washington the concept of pan-global or pan-european at least um, elitism elitism right that was uh, spearheaded by uh, General uh, Cornwallis and we know how that ended. Well, skip now to the Civil War in America. And interestingly enough, that conflict also was, you could, you could choose two people or two men who represented the conflict. I would say that on the Union side, it would, it would undoubtedly be Abraham Lincoln. And on... Uh, the Confederacy side, I would choose Robert E. Lee. Now, both men were fierce uh, patriots for America, and both men were fierce patriots, patriots for their tribe. So what was the difference? Well, you could say the difference had to do with slavery and the treatment of, uh, of black people, African Americans, and so on. But that's not necessarily the story. The story was to me that for Robert E. Lee, his primary identity, just like it was for his, uh, I think, distant relative and certainly uh, his uh, uh, tribal mate from Virginia, George Washington, to Robert E. Lee, his tribal national belonging was first of all Virginia. Robert E. Lee was first and foremost a Virginian and secondly an American. Um, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, I do not believe that he saw himself as first of all somebody from Illinois and I'm sorry I don't know the demonym for Illinois, for somebody from Illinois. Should have looked it up I guess. Um, for Lincoln his identity was pan-American. In other words, his first tribal belonging, his self-identification was that of an American, first and foremost. 
And so the reason that Lincoln could not abide to see America split in half was not necessarily because he perceived the act of secession as illegal. And I think many people back then uh, had doubts that it was indeed illegal. And I think that many people, uh, even in the North, believed it was indeed legal. But Lincoln, being a fierce American patriot, could not bear the thought of this American experiment, of this great adventure upon which, you know, four score years ago, um, the, you know, the, the, uh, their, their ancestors, such as George Washington, embarked upon, he perceived it as too valuable to be destroyed by partition or by secession. Even, even if that, to, to Lincoln, even if that secession was done legally, in other words, constitutionally, it was still a kind of a crime. It was a crime against the grand vision of the founding fathers of America. And more on that topic in the next segment. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to the show, folks. So we were talking about the Civil War and uh, the first Civil War, I guess you could say the second Civil War of the 1860s. And the premise of this show, and I'll get uh, soon to, the, to, 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 current, uh, to our current events, is that there are these two men, one of one representing each side in one of those seminal events that happen in the life of a nation, maybe every hundred years or so. And we talked earlier in that in the previous segment about the American first civil war, the War of Independence, uh, which also in which also England participated, of course. And we talked how George Washington on the American side and Lord Cornwallis on the English side kind of personified that conflict. And then we switched to the Second American Civil War, the one of the 1860s, and I began talking about how Robert E. Lee and Abraham Lincoln personified the two sides of that conflict. And just like in the first Civil War, in the War of Independence, there was the side, Lord Cornwallis, that represented a kind of a more globalist, in a sense, point of view, the point of view of this 
pan-European, almost pan-global elite versus George Washington, who represented more parochial, limited Virginian slash American interests. Well, in the uh, Civil War of the 1860s, Robert E. Lee was perhaps more of a George Washington than Abraham Lincoln. Because for Lincoln, uh, his vision or his interest, his national belonging was not with uh, the territory of Illinois in which he was born. It was with America. It was to America, to that grand concept of a nation based on the principles of liberty, of individual freedom and limited government that would span the continent. That vision was primary. Uh, It was the driving force behind Lincoln. And that vision, to a certain degree, you could could call it a globalist vision. And I'll tell you why I say that, because it's a kind of a, perhaps a provocative concept. But if you were a fierce patriot of your state or your commonwealth, just like Robert E. Lee was a fierce patriot of Virginia, then to you, this idea that the interests of the United States supersede the interests of each individual state would have seemed like a globalist idea. And that was certainly the idea to which Lincoln was Uh, so tightly wedded, right? To to Lincoln, the idea of the United States was supreme to any other idea. And so while Lincoln, I imagine, could well understand why people like Robert E. Lee, who were American patriots, fought him to the death, literally, and sacrificed so much, I think Lincoln could could understand their motives but he could not agree with their motives because to him, the dream of a powerful United States that would occupy the continent was paramount to everything else. And while we could say that in the Revolutionary War, the first American Civil War, the parochial, the local, the the narrow nationalist side won, well, the second world, the second civil war in America, sorry, was won by the more expansionist, the more, in a sense, globalist interests represented by the North. And that brings us to current events today. And we have to, and, and who are the two men that are representing so well each side of this current civil war that we find ourselves in in America. Well, undoubtedly, on one side is uh, President Donald J. Trump. On the other side, there are many candidates, but, you know, (laughs) it may seem to many on our side of the political divide, or even of the civil war, that Biden, (coughs) Joe Biden, was a ridiculously poor choice to represent the other side, because um, just like that President Trump uh, says, Biden was always a nasty, small-time politico, dumb as a bag of nails. All he knew how to do from the very early onset of his career, 
and that's why he became a politician. He had a knack for pressing the, the flesh and for peddling influence. So peddling influence, you know, in other words, selling his office to the highest bidder was all that uh, Biden has ever known how to do. And so it's no surprise that when he achieved the status of vice president, he just, all he did was raise the price and kept selling it to the highest bidder, which happened to be China. He's been doing it for, you know, half a century. And, and so combine that with his, uh, you know, dementia, and, uh, or at least the onset thereof, and with his general kind of uh, unlikability and, 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 this, and the fact that his uh, criminal behavior in terms of selling his political office, uh, everybody knew that it would come to the fore, and you would say that he makes a poor choice for the Democrats, and we shall see what happens in the election. But I would say that in terms of uh, representing the other side of the struggle, the the globalist side of the struggle, the anti-American side of the struggle, Biden actually makes for a very good candidate. Uh, Because he, he is such a fantastic embodiment of that, of that side. You know, he um, does not see in America his true homeland. He does not see in Americans his true people. Okay. Uh, his, uh, I don't know if he considers what to what tribe he belongs or it even interests him at all. But if I imagine that if you really got down to the bottom of it, he would tell you that he belongs to the kind of globalist tribe of these elites, these uh, <clears throat> bribe takers, these um, exploiters of regular hardworking folks that exist in every Western country. Okay, and from that perspective, he represents his side very well. I mean, Donald Trump represents the Donald Trump. If you if if you ask yourself for a second, what is his homeland and what is his national belonging? What is his tribe? Then you know nothing about the man. I mean, clearly for Donald Trump, sorry, from for Donald Trump, his tribe is America, all of Americans, all of America, and when he says to his uh, audiences uh, in his rallies that he loves them. He absolutely means it. He loves every single one of them. He loves the rich and the poor, the people that work with their hands and the people that work with their minds, the people that have no education and the people that have lots of education, the people that barely have a dollar and the people that have billions. As long as they're Americans, Trump loves them all and considers all of them to be his members of his tribe, to be his people, in the, in, in the absolutely literal sense of that word, his people. Well, there's no way that Joe Biden thinks that way. For Joe Biden, if you are a coal miner in West Virginia, he doesn't uh, give two bits about you. I mean, we know that, right? He, he's quite open about it, too. 
I mean, if you uh, do not support him, you're a chump. He said that just a couple of days ago. In other words, you're useless. Um, the word chump is a little bit of an, an anachronism, I guess, now. It is not, not very much in uh, current usage. But it's a word that, uh, I don't know, if you, were, if you watch uh, Turner Classic movies or something like that, you may hear that word in movies that were made sometimes between the 30s and the 50s. And um, there was another word uh, that kind of was uh, somewhat synonymous to it, and, that, and that's a heel. You know, so heels, chumps were these useless people that were good for nothing and um, honestly were not worth the space that they were occupying or the air that they were breathing. And uh, when uh, Biden called the... Uh, you know, the half of America that does not support him chumps, he meant it. He meant it. He, he, he was like, you are not my people. You are uh, occupying space that doesn't belong to you and I really wish that you were gone. In, in, in a sense, it's worse than the deplorable moment from Hillary. Right? It's, it's, it's a bigger insult. It's just a little bit out of its time so people didn't really get worked up about it. But Biden is much more at home with, uh, you know, elite functionaries in the <coughs> Chinese Communist Party than with uh, hardworking Americans. And that's just a fact. Uh, Biden uh, sees himself as a member of this globalist pool of apparatchiks, uh, to use a communist Russian word, or high-level apparatchiks. In Russia, in the Soviet Union, they used this word nomenklatura. Nomenklatura were senior level functionaries in the Soviet uh, Communist Party, right? And Biden is a classic nomenklatura guy. Classic. He's a guy who promoted himself got based on nothing but his ability to push down on other people and to be less moral, more immoral, more avaricious, not inhibited by any, uh, like, again, morality or sense of right and wrong. And those are the kinds of people that get ahead in those societies like China or the Soviet Union. And Biden is a great representative of that. So the war that we have now in America is a war between people who love America as a country, as a nation, and as an idea, the idea of individual freedom and, lim and limited government. And that, that side is represented very well by Donald Trump. The other side, uh, the other side of this equation are people who see the American idea, the American ideal of uh, individual liberty and of limited government, they see it as racist, and they say it all the time. There is a concentrated attack now on the American Constitution by various <clears throat> blue check uh, mark verified Twitter accounts, and who openly say that American, the American Constitution is racist, and that it's outlived its usefulness a long time ago and should be abolished. They just say it out in the open. And I bet you that especially among young Americans, that view 
if it if it if it even is a minority view is a view of a very large minority so these people you know you know folks if you want to abolish the american constitution then you're not american because america is attached uh, at the hip like a siamese twin to its constitution the constitution gave birth to america and america is an entity that sustains the constitution if you separate the constitution from america then america ceases to be america and becomes something entirely different but that is what the people who are going to vote for joe biden or, or have already voted for him that's what they want they like obama want to <clears throat> radically transform america in other words to separate it from its constitution and those people are certainly very well represented by mr joe biden but you know just recently there was another duo that uh, uh, I was, that represents that divide, that embodies, personifies that divide. And that duo is um, Mr. Bubulinski, the uh, retired uh, Navy lieutenant and <clears throat> current business person or businessman who made the mistake of his life and got involved with the Biden crime cartel but caught himself in time and now exposed their um, criminal uh, shenanigans. And on the other hand, uh, Mr. Miles Taylor, the so-called senior, but in fact, completely junior, uh, apparatchik, you know, deep stater, who uh, made the killing by selling some sort of nonsense story about Trump to the uh, uh, New York Times and, you know, under the heading <laughs> Anonymous and now is a CNN contributor and is making bank from this, uh, you know, from his hatred towards America. So these two guys, you know, Mr. Bublinski uh, and Mr. Taylor, they also personify the American Civil War, the, the third American Civil War, that is now upon us. Uh, on one hand, with Mr. Bublinski, we see a guy who, <clears throat> early on in his life, took his um, destiny in his own hands, joined the Navy, and I guess he comes from a long history of people who served in the armed forces in his family, or from a long line of people who served in the armed forces. And so he joined the Navy, he served with distinction, and then he kind of parlayed, I imagine, uh, some of those leadership skills that he learned as a naval officer into a successful business career. Interestingly enough, he was always a Democrat and contributed uh, quite a bit to Democratic Party uh, causes and to the Democratic Party itself. However, he retained, obviously, this sense of integrity. And when, and when he felt that he had to come forward, even at a great, even at great risk to his uh, business interests and to even to his safety and his family's safety, he did so. More in the next segment. My fellow 
Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. Well, AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world, featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. Join us, we're in this together, and we consider you part of our family in our crusade to share the news, commentary, and agenda that can lead America back again. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Welcome back to the show. So um, I ended up the previous segment uh, talking about uh, Mr. Bublinski and uh, Mr. Miles Taylor. And uh, Mr. Bublinski, you know, he <clears throat> came forward uh, with, I mean, it's not even accusations. It's direct evidence that uh, Joe Biden <clears throat> uh, runs and ran a criminal um, cartel to defraud his own his own office. In other words, to to use his high office as vice vice president and as a likely president of America, he leveraged that to make um, <clears throat> to make a buck. Now, normally you could say, well, yeah, I know. Did he do like a little insider trading like all of them do? Oh, no, 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 no. He sold America out to its greatest enemy, China. That's what Biden did. Well, (laughs) Mr. Bublinski saw that. And even though he's a Democrat, he decided to come forward. But he came forward under his own name. He appeared... On TV, he signed his name to everything. He exposed his voice, his face, and everything there is to be to be exposed about himself. That is an act of extreme bravery. That this is what a gentleman would do. This is what George Washington, Robert E. Lee, and Abraham Lincoln would do. And in doing so, and I would, you know, I would. Before I continue, I would I would say that this is also what Lord Cornwallis would do, <clears throat> because Cornwallis may have been a globalist elitist, 
but he was also a gentleman. And he would never have gone behind, you know, spreading rumors anonymously. And so uh, Mr. Bublinsky continues in this tradition of gentlemanly behavior. He is a credit to what it is to be American. He's an example of what it means to be an American. And then we look at this guy, Miles Taylor. So Miles Taylor never served this country. <clears throat> he probably went to a good university and then from there joined the civil service, which is a very cushy job. Probably wrote a few position papers and embed embedded himself in what we call the deep state. And then in the Department of Homeland Security <clears throat> as some guy who nobody ever heard of. And then he did something uh, even more interesting because when Donald Trump was elected and uh, all of uh, the D.C. swamp deep state people were aghast and, you know, were using up all their tissues to wipe their tears, well... You know, while they were all crying, Mr. Taylor there, Miles, he saw an opportunity to make bank on that. And he knew that the American so-called media, in other words, the propaganda arm of the globalist, um, communist, progressives known as the Democratic Party, he knew that they would be suckers for anything and everything anti-Trump. So he approached the New York Times and offered them uh, to become a kind of an anonymous source to write, uh, you know, some uh, hit job on Trump. It doesn't even matter. Some sort of Pablo, anti-Trump, blah, 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 whatever. That's, that's not the important part or the interesting part. The interesting part was that New York Times was very, very eager to publish anti-Trump copy, but, you know, they kind of maxed out on their own writers under their own bylines writing this anti-Trump copy. So they needed something different. And what this guy Miles offered them is to basically kind of uh, legitimately say that they had an anonymous source within the administration that was that would reveal all these horrible <clears throat> supposed misdeeds by President Trump. Now, both Miles and New York Times were, of course, complicit in lying to the American people because the New York Times knew full well that... Um, in reality, Miles Taylor was as part of the Trump administration as I am. In other words, not at all. He was some sort of junior staffer that nobody, not only Trump, uh, but nobody in Trump's orbit has ever heard of. So in that sense, he was not at all a part of the Trump administration. He was not a political appointee. In other words, he was not senior enough or nearly uh, senior enough in uh, the civil service to be 
replaced or to be hired and fired at the whim of the incoming or outgoing administration. He was far below that, which means that he was a kind of a lifer. And these people are certainly not a part of any administration. And on purpose, so whether they're good or bad, that's just how it is. They cannot be fired uh, almost un under any circumstances, regardless who is in the White House. And this is something that New York Times knew full well. So when they gave this billing to the story that this was a source in the administration, and they even said a senior source, uh, this was uh, just a, uh, a lie. But they went with it because supposedly everybody who works for the executive branch is part of the Trump administration. So in other words, even the security guard, if he gets a federal paycheck, you know, he's part of the administration. And that's not far from what this Taylor guy actually was, Miles Taylor. So anyway, so now, of course, uh, Taylor is out of government, but he's a CNN contributor and he's making money off of his lies and so on. And in that sense, he's a great representation of everything that's wrong with America, of, of um, just a sleazy little traitor who saw an opportunity to cash in on his utterly unremarkable career, <clears throat> badmouth uh, a president that was elected uh, by a very large majority in electoral college and by a near majority in the popular vote, somebody who got over 60 million votes, well, this guy took it upon himself to besmirch without any evidence uh, that person, i.e. President Trump, and uh, just uh, make money out of it. So in that sense, he's just like Biden. He's a sellout. He's somebody who uh, sold his position of trust, such as it was, to the highest bidder, which happened to be the New York Times and now CNN. So what we have here, folks, is um, we are in the middle of, um, or at the beginning, of another transformational point for America. America started by separating itself from what then was the world's greatest globalist empire. And the Americans that supported this idea of separation, of independence, were Americans who were people who preferred their independence, their somewhat parochial, somewhat local point of view to this, you could say, distinction or even honor of belonging to this great empire. And that was far from a point of view to be shared by all Americans. There, were, uh, there was a group of Americans called United Royal Loyalists for whom um, the idea that they would prefer their identity as Pennsylvanians, let's say, to their identity as Englishmen was ridiculous. <clears throat> and when they lost that civil war. In other words, when they found themselves on the wrong side of history in the early 1780s, they left and they established in Nova Scotia a settlement called Shelburne, after Lord Shelburne, who is a 
British nobleman. Actually, there's a Shelburne in Vermont, also called after the same guy. So, and actually, I own some land which belonged to a family for many, for, uh, for, for centuries, belonged to a family of these United Loyal, uh, United Royal, sorry, United Empire Loyalists. I want to be careful here. United Empire Loyalists. And I re researched that family a little bit because I was curious. And they're from Western Pennsylvania, uh, close to Pittsburgh. So these were people who were probably second, third, whatever generation Pennsylvanians. But when uh, the United States was born, they want to have not do with it. So they left their ancestral lands, which were probably much better lands than what they got in Nova Scotia, agriculturally and so on, because they just couldn't stand the idea of separating themselves from the British Empire. It's something to consider, right? And maybe they act, and, and yeah, I would say that they acted honorably. They just had a different idea about what honor was. So I would say that in the first American Civil War, both sides, George Washington and Cornwallis, the Patriots and the Loyalists, were honorable people. And even though they fought to the death, they fought for honorable principles. And the same could be said for the Second American uh, Civil War, the one in the 1860s. Both sides, and I know this is a perhaps unpopular viewpoint today, but both sides in that conflict fought for honorable causes and fought honorably. For the North, for Lincoln, the idea that America would split in two and not fulfill its grand destiny was sacrilege. And by them keeping America together, they brought a lot of good to the world, a lot of good to people like me even, because I, my family was only allowed to leave the Soviet Union because in the 1970s, because America was powerful enough and morally just enough to pressure the Soviet Union to let its jury go. Of course, America, the united, powerful America also defeated, or at least helped defeat Nazism, liberated countless people around the world and so on, and defeated Imperial Japan and just brought a lot of good things to, to the world, which probably would not have been possible had America split in two in, nine, in, sorry, in 1861. But the other side of that civil war also fought for honorable causes because they fought for their land, for their homeland. Not many of them were slave owners, but they wanted to chart their own history. And that's what they fought for. And they perhaps had a, an inkling that in a united America, their interests, in other words, the interests of the South would become kind of subservient to the interests of the North. And that is indeed what, ha what has happened. So they were not wrong about that. And who can blame them for not liking that and for fighting to not be subservient, to not occupy this somewhat lower rung in this unified country, even if it's not, 
it, it was, of course, it's, it was never structurally lower, but as we know, the North was the leading force after the Civil War and up to this point in time. So the first two wars had two sides who were gentlemen and who were fighting for honorable causes. Well, not so this time. I'm sorry, but not so this time. This time, we see on our side, on the side that's spearheaded by Donald Trump, honor, tradition, God, and American values. And what we see on the other side is bribe-taking, criminal behavior, debauchery, godlessness, and selling out to the worst kind of entities in the world, for example, like China. There is nothing honorable about people like Joe Biden or Miles Taylor. They are the worst kind of sellout crooks that you can possibly imagine. Every American should be ashamed that these people were even born in America. Okay? They are the scum of this earth. They really are. And many of their voters, too. I'm sorry. I know that there's a lot of voters out there who are uninformed and so be it. But there are a lot of people out there who are informed. But that's what they want to do. They want to vote against America. They want to vote against the American founding fathers. They want to vote against the American Constitution. They want to vote against the American principles as they're embodied in the Bill of Rights, against freedom of speech, against the right to, be, to keep and bear arms, against the right to peaceably assemble. And they want to vote for looting, burning down cities, for critical race theory, which basically says that the only inferior race in the world is whites. That's what it substantially says. They want to vote for that. Okay. There's nothing honorable about this other side. And if this other side somehow manages to win this election or steal it, they will have a big leg up in this civil war. And it may make it so that the other side, in other words, our side, has very few options left in defending not only America as a country that is a, a, a shining city on a hill, how it was intended to be, but even defending our basic rights. Even that will be difficult to do if, God forbid, Joe Biden wins this election. So, my friends, this is the last show before the election. And I have a lot of trepidation, to be honest, and a heavy heart. And I wish that when I next talk to you next week, we can all celebrate Trump's victory and we can all celebrate America's renaissance, America's rebirth even if the road is still long and difficult. So please, go out there and vote for Trump and vote straight Republican ticket. See you after the election. Choose to be free.